Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much for listening. It's just me today. John's not with us. He's unwell. No, just joking. Not sure why he's in here. I just figured I'll uh, sort this one out myself. But this episode, it is probably the biggest interview I've ever conducted. It's probably one that I've prepped the most for. It's probably the one that I've been most nervous about. So this one, it's a great one and you're going to get so much out of it. This whole podcast, you listening to this right now, would not be possible without our show partner, Sunsuper. Sunsuper is a non-for-profit company. So basically what that means, if you're new to this whole uh, super world and everyone's got a superannuation account, they're not owned by a big bank, they're not owned by individual people. Like you could start a super fund tomorrow by yourself, have all the right regulations and charge people more money and keep the profit yourself. Literally, you can do that. Not many people do. However, Sunsuper is a non-for-profit and they put any profit back into the members. Now, what that means is because they are non-profit, they don't have to make a profit. And it's really weird this, but it just means that the fees end up being lower because they don't have to pay a fat cat on Wall Street or George Street or Collins Street, wherever street you are. So thank you to Sun Super for getting behind the podcast. It's really been great to have them as a show partner. I've learned a lot and we've had a great response from many people trying them, throwing them in the mix when they consider their superannuation. So thank you so much, Sun Super. Peter Singer is the world's most influential living philosopher. He's the professor of bioethics at Princeton University and a laureate professor at the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics at the University of Melbourne. He's written and edited over 50 books and essays, including his well-known book, Animal Liberation. He's the founder of The Life You Can Save, an organisation focused on spreading his ideas about why we should be doing much more to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty. In today's episode, Peter faces his greatest ethical dilemma yet, a conversation with Glenn James. Glenn speaks to Peter about how we can end extreme poverty. They also talk about global aid, how to find a good charity, personal finance, and Peter also answers some of your questions. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that Peter's book, The Life You Can Save, is currently in its 10th anniversary and is now available where all good books are sold. If you're not into physical books, you can also go to thelifeyoucansave.org.au for a free digital copy, and there's also an audiobook available which is narrated by various celebrities. And finally, in June of this year, Peter will be on a speaking tour of Australia and New Zealand. So jump online to Ticketek and grab your tickets. And if you're really unlucky, you might just see Glenn in Sydney. So we've got Peter Singer live from Princeton. Are you in Princeton, Peter? Uh, I'm in New York right at the moment. But I do, I do teach at Princeton normally, but the semester is finished. Right. So we've got Peter from New York. And I just wanted to say, Peter, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule and an evening uh, because of the time difference to speak to us today. And a shout out to Alex Louie, who is 
in our My Millennial Money community who suggested Peter and the life you can save for our giving episode. So, thank you very much, Alex. Now, you are coming back down to Australia in June. Can you tell us a little bit about your trip? Uh, In June, I will be doing a uh, speaking tour of Australia uh, and uh, and New Zealand, or Auckland anyway. So, I will be speaking in um, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Auckland uh, in late June. I don't exactly have the dates, but uh, it's available on uh, on the website too, I think, on The Life You Can Save. I think it's around June 20th. I think the, the dates slightly vary for the different cities, but uh, yeah, you can you can find it and, and tickets are available now. And by the way, uh, all of the profits made after covering uh, expenses are going to go to The Life You Can Save. So. Don't worry about putting up some money. You can think of it as a, as a donation. Oh, wow. Great. Love it. Now, I want to challenge and encourage anyone that's out there. You might not get to a lecture in your spare time for entertainment or if you want to call it that, you might not go ordinarily and hear a philosopher. You might not go and hear a talk about generosity, but I want to encourage you to stretch yourself. If you're listening to this now and you're in one of the capital cities where Peter's talking, grab a ticket, grab a friend, come along, challenge yourself, and you might even have a challenge life after you've heard Peter speak. Because I know I'm going to go to Sydney and I'm so looking forward to it. Now, I wanted to set the scene for today's chat with you, Peter, and I've broken it down into three type of broad topics. The first one I want to talk about is global aid. I want to move into finding a good charity. Then I want to bring it home and talk about our own personal finances and giving. And then we've got a couple of listener questions that we want to ask you, Peter. But Peter, I picked up your book and I was like, why didn't I find this book 10 years ago? But it's actually good reading the updated version to see the improvements that are being made to alleviating global poverty since you released the original version of your book. Yes, that's right. Uh, it was quite actually interesting going through the ten year, the, the original edition and seeing what changes need to be made um, because there are a lot of changes that need to be made and most of them, perhaps surprisingly, given the sort of doom and gloom around, most of them in a positive direction. So, for example, in the uh, original edition, uh, which went to press, I suppose, 11 years ago, uh, the number of people living in extreme poverty in the world was 1.4 billion. That's the World Bank's figure. In this edition, uh, the World Bank's figure was down to 734 billion. So uh, almost cut in half um, during that period. Uh, Similarly, uh, UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Emergency uh, Fund, uh, has figures on the number of children who die before their fifth birthday. And that's overwhelmingly children dying of poverty-related causes like lack of safe drinking water, um, malaria, you know, diseases that people, children don't die of in countries like Australia. Uh, that figure was at 9.7 million uh, in, 10 years ago, and now it's 5.4 million. So again, almost, almost cut in half. Uh, that's really positive. And the other thing is that there are a lot of new and highly effective charities that were not around or had not been properly scrutinized and audited uh, 10 years ago that I can now mention in the new edition and recommend to people as highly effective charities that will use your donations very well to do a lot of good with them. 
Yeah, and I've just got the book here. And if you are going to grab the book and re-listen to this episode, it's on page 186. There's actually a graph and it's like if you draw a capital X, flipped it on its side and there's a line dropping down one side which is the cost of closing the poverty gap. And then there's the line that's kind of going straight up and then the other way that's basically foreign aid increasing. So what we've probably seen since 2005, that there's a crossover there. So I guess my question, Peter, is are we getting more bang for our buck with foreign aid? Well, one of the things is that there are fewer people in extreme poverty. So with fewer people in extreme poverty, obviously the cost of lifting people out of extreme poverty drops. And the other factor is that uh, even for those who are still in extreme poverty, their average income has risen. So um, the extreme poverty line, roughly speaking, is about $2, maybe in Australian dollars, a little bit more than that. Um, uh, and whereas the average person 10 years ago, I don't remember exactly, but let's say it was on $1.20, now that maybe they're on $1.50. So the gap is smaller what it would take to lift them out of extreme poverty. Um, and that's also makes it less expensive to do this. Uh, and of course, you know, we have the resources to do it. That's the, that's the other point that this graph makes. Uh, it's not beyond us. You know, sure, we're not going to get everybody out of extreme poverty. There'll be countries in which there's a civil war going on or a terrible government. You can't really help everybody there. But um, in terms of large-scale mass extreme poverty, uh, we do now have the resources to pretty much put an end to that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really encouraging. Now, just on that, you talked about in your book, I guess it's this political philosophy that you leave me alone and I'll leave you alone and everything will be good. Now, for those out there who have no idea what I'm talking about, well, I'm talking about there might be like a developed nation on one side of the world, and then they keep to themselves because they've got the mandate that their government is sovereign and will look after our citizens, and that everyone should just look after themselves and it will all be good. Now, why wouldn't that stack up in practical terms? Well, in practical terms, there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't. One, which is I know very much on Australians' minds at the moment is that every developed nation is contributing substantially to climate change by its greenhouse gas emissions. Some are doing a lot better than Australia in, in cutting them back, but um, everybody is, is putting, you know, every developed nation really is putting a lot more into the atmosphere than people in some of the poorest nations because then they don't have industry that's generating large amounts of uh, greenhouse gases. They, they don't drive around in, in cars. They don't eat so much meat. So all of these things that uh, we're responsible for, uh, they're not, and yet we're harming them. So that's, uh, that's one reason we can't say, well, we'll leave you alone, because they would say, well, stop changing the climate where we are. Uh, another, of course, is that, that the world does trade. Uh, we are an interlocking community of, of trade now. Some countries trade less than others, but that's significant. And you could argue that the trading system is tilted to favour the developed nations, um, disadvantage some of the poorer nations. For example, agricultural subsidies that uh, both the United States and uh, the European Union pay to its producers. Uh, in the case of the United States, they subsidize their cotton producers who are inherently less efficient than West African uh, small cotton farmers, you know, essentially people who are farming a, a couple of acres of cotton to survive. Uh, and they produce 
more cheaply than the big mechanized and wealthy American cotton growers. But because the American government subsidizes its cotton growers, they can sell on the world market under the cost of production for some West African growers. So that you know reduces their income. Uh, so again, they're not they're not leaving them alone. Um, but even if we put all those practical factors aside, uh, I think there's a moral argument to say that if we're well off, well enough off to spend money on things that we don't really need at all, whether that's traveling around the world on on holidays or um, buying lattes when you you know could could just drink the water that comes out of the tap. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, don't you attack lattes, Peter? <laughs> I could see what you're doing there, Glenn. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, whatever it is you know if if there are other people who through no fault of their own just are born in circumstances that are so much tougher than ours and are struggling to survive or perhaps not surviving perhaps watching their children die um, because for example they're not sleeping under a bed net um, and therefore getting malaria and dying uh, I think it's incumbent on us to do something to help them to spare some of you know the abundance that we have to make sure that they can get bed nets for the, themselves and their children to sleep under. Uh, I think that's just you know, basic moral decency. Do you think that, although it's far from perfect, the UN is the best shot that we've got to get the message out to the rest of the world? Well, the UN is an important forum at which uh, we can set targets and we can try to have common standards. We can try to get corporations to have some ethical principles. Um, and the UN publishes important studies, uh, as does the World Bank, of the extent of, of poverty and uh, uh, population growth and, and a whole range of other things. But um, I don't really think we need the World Bank in order to be assisting people in uh, low-income countries. I think we we have the means to do that. There are a number of organizations, in fact, there's a very large number of organizations that are non-government organizations um, that are finding the best ways to help people. And, and there are other organizations of which the life you can save is one that are uh, curating a list of the best organizations that are finding those on which there is good independent research to say which are the organizations that will give you the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, so because of that, I think we can go directly to those organizations that are themselves working uh, in low-income countries, uh, and we can know that we're contributing to make a big difference in the lives of people much less well-off than we are. So I guess the amazing thing is, uh, as technology increases, like 20 years ago, we weren't talking on podcasts, okay? So like if I told my nan... Uh, 10 years ago that I was going to be a podcaster, she'd probably just freak out. So we've got this tool to spread the message. So my challenge to everybody listening, if you are listening to this episode, forward it to somebody, pick up the book, send them the ebook, tell them about it. The life you can save, let's spread the message. And then we can actually just go viral with the message of helping people in need the most. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That's really what I would, I would love this to happen for, you know, pretty much everybody all around the world to know that they can get the book for free as a free download. Uh, an audio book is available, by the way, also free as well as the ebook. Um, so, uh, and, and the audio book, by the way, is, is read by, each chapter is read by a different person. We have some great celebrities like uh, Kristen Bell, 
um, and Paul Simon, and uh, I, I read a chapter, and a variety of other people do as well. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry, that's right. The Brit. So we, we got one of the things I like about the the audio book actually is that you know this is a global project about the world as a whole, and and we have a global range of of uh, accents of people reading the book. So we have. My Australian English. We have Stephen Fry's beautiful uh, BBC English. We have Paul Simon with an uh, American accent. Uh, Kristen Bell, Nicholas D'Agosto, they're uh, all American. We have Shabana Azmi, who's a very famous Indian actress, um, reads with an Indian actress uh, accent. We have Natalia Vodianova, who's a Russian supermodel, um, reading with her um, lightly accented, shall we say, Russian uh, accent. <laughs> and uh, Winnie Alma, who's uh, from uh, Uganda, reads with an African accent. So, everybody, you've got to spread it. And it will change your life. It rocked my world. I'm borderline ashamed of my actions, but ignorance can be bliss. Right, right on. Um, so, let's make everybody get rid of everybody's ignorance here. Yeah, absolutely. Because once you know, you've got no excuse. So, that's where I'm at now. I'm reassessing my life as I know it. But anyway, back to the UN. The UN has a foreign aid target of 0.7% for countries of their national income. Someone might be listening, and we hear it all the time when there's a sensational event in Australia, like, for example, the recent fires, the drought that's been going on forever, uh, floods, it could be homelessness, it could be mental health. You often hear, well, we bloody gave $1 billion to Indonesia when the tsunami hit, and we can't even look after our farmers. Is it more of a case, Peter, of governments being incompetent that they can't manage their own money? Or is it more of an awareness that people, like we actually are not aware of the bang for the buck that we can give to developing nations and those in need if we give right? I think that we can probably individually do better than the government can, although I, I don't want to put down Australia's aid program too much. I mean, some of it is politically directed to countries where we have a particular interest in. Uh, but it, it has had some very good programs. Uh, I'm a little concerned now there have been changes to uh, what used to be AusAid being distributed around the Department of Foreign Affairs. I'm, I'm concerned that it may be more susceptible to political influence. I'm also concerned that the amount of it is dropping. You mentioned that UN target of 0.7% uh, of gross national income. So for those who are not very numerate, um, and not quite sure how big or small that is. Let me put it this way. If in every $100 you earned, you gave 70 cents to uh, help people in poverty elsewhere in the world, then you would be meeting the UN target. The Australian government doesn't give 70 cents in every $100 the nation earns. It gives about 21 or 22 cents. So less than a third of what the UN is suggesting, and therefore less than a third of what the United Kingdom gives, for example, right? The United Kingdom does meet that 0.7 target. Um, and, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners have visited uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, does anyone think when they go there, wow, this country is so much better off than Australia is? I don't think anybody thinks that, and I certainly don't think that. In fact, I think there are large parts of the country that are poorer than a, a, you would find, likely to find in Australia. And yet they have this bipartisan agreement that uh, they will meet the UN target. Uh, and I wish that uh, we in Australia had a similar bipartisan agreement to raise the miserable amount we're giving, at least to that sort of level. So that's uh, as far as government aid is concerned. But, but the other thing is that I think, uh, as I said, 
if we really target our aid well to the most effective organizations, we probably are doing better than government because we can, you know, independent organizations can take more risks. They, they, and then some of them are going to come unstuck, but others can hit on something really good. And then we get these independent researchers to check what they're doing and recommend them. Uh, and so I think perhaps that's a little more lean and hungry than uh, government aid is likely to be. Yeah, it's really annoying. And I know you don't want to bash governments and particularly Australia who, you know, I think we do a really good job with being generous more than a lot of other countries. But for me, it's just got to do with the incompetence of managing the budget. And it's just so bloody political. Like the whole climate change issue at the moment, the incumbent government in Australia and probably the opposition to a point and even other developed Western developed governments, they know that their core base doesn't really care about climate change. So why would they spend the money if they know that they can get the votes because of the rank and file not actually caring about climate change? Like there's a lot lot of noise with some protests and some social media stuff, but, and it looks good when there's a big image of thousands of people marching about climate change, but compared to the actual numbers and voters, it's such a small amount. So, having said all that, I think we do need to flip it back to the people to push for change and just keep going. And maybe by spreading the message of thelifeyoucansave.org.au and the book, The Life You Can Save, it's just the start of maybe going in at another angle almost. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, And certainly the last Australian federal election was very disappointing in that there was a choice on climate change. and uh, people didn't vote for climate change, uh, whether they voted, you know, well, they voted for the coalition. Clearly, they were getting less action than if they'd voted for Labor. Um, if they voted for the Greens, they would have got more still. Um, and the Greens didn't do very well either. But uh, so I perhaps, you know, when it comes to that decision you make in the ballot box, people worry more about their electricity bill going up uh, than they do about the future of the country for their children and grandchildren. But uh, you know, in the wake of the, the fires that you've had recently, it would seem that the costs are quite devastating for a country like Australia to uh, ignore climate change. Australia should really be a world leader in what it's doing for climate change, not, uh, not one of the laggards as we, as we have been. And I'll probably be one of the first to admit that until semi-recently, my whole view was as long as India, China and the United States aren't doing anything to assist with climate change, the whole drop in the ocean comment about, well, there's no point in us doing anything at the at the sake of our industry and, and whatnot. But when I reflect, and particularly more so after reading your book, Peter, I was really thinking like, no, in other areas, Australia is an early adapter of technology, Okay. So, why can't we be an early adapter in other industries and at a high industry level, countries look at other countries to see how they've transitioned and as almost a benchmark that, hey, it was done over there, so it can be done here. So, I think as far as I can see, it is a leadership problem, uh, particularly in Australia, and there's no reason why we can't be a leader because we are on the world stage. It's simple as that. We're not the biggest nation but we are on the world stage and we have a seat at the table. So I believe it's a leadership problem and we can do this. 
Yeah, so you're right. I think we should be um, a, a moral leader and joining the other nations that are most at risk to put pressure on uh, the countries you mentioned, um, United States, India and China, um, to get them to do the right thing. Uh, and I think we you know, we can do that. A lot of the countries most at risk are very poor countries and, and they're at risk because they don't have the resources to guard against climate change. Uh, their population may be heavily dependent on rainfall to grow their crops, which, you know, they're, they're uh, feeding themselves, they're subsistence farmers. Um, and Australia maybe uh, can help them to present their case and join them with that case. So I think we could have a significant global role on climate change. But only, of course, if we put the policies in place ourselves, not if, um, as happened at the recent uh, conference, uh, we're actually haggling for changing the accounting procedures so that it makes it easier for us to comply with the target we agreed to back in Paris, um, when in fact this is really a kind of fiddling the books exercise, not a real reduction in our emissions. So just rounding off the global aid and extreme world poverty and why developed nations actually have a responsibility. In your book, you talked about the fishing villages off the African coast. Can you please give us an example of what's happening there and why we do need to help? Yeah, so that's another example. It goes back to your very first question of, you know, well, we can leave them alone and get on with our own thing. But in fact, we're not doing that because um, there are you know, international fishing fleets that are trawling the waters off the African coasts, uh, just outside the territorial limits uh, of those places. And so villages where for hundreds of years, people have made a living and been able to have a healthy diet by uh, going out in their small craft uh, and fishing, um, they can no longer do that because uh, of course the fish don't know about the territorial limits. So they move out and uh, are scooped up and then they don't come back inshore for the local fishermen to catch. Uh, and, you know, who is it who can buy the fish from the uh, international fishing fleet? Of course, it's not the African villages. They don't have the currency to do that. Um, it's it's uh, Europe and uh, the United States and Australia and, uh, and perhaps increasingly China. Uh, so this is a, another case where we have really... Um, you know, not had a level playing field. We've not respected the interests of people in this region who really need our assistance um, and at least certainly need us to stop harming them. And and the result of that has exacerbated the, uh, the refugee crisis where people who can no longer feed themselves in their villages are trying to get, uh, in this case, across the Mediterranean to, to Europe um, because they don't really have much in the way of, of alternatives there. Well, there you have it. If you want to know more about global aid and what we can actually freaking do to help this planet that we're living on, grab Peter's book. You need to actually have already downloaded it before this episode's over, to be frank, okay? Well, jump on thelifeyoucansave.org.au and download it, get the audiobook, or jump on to Amazon or wherever you buy your books and get the 10th anniversary edition. I kid you not, it rocked my world, and it's a really great read. So, thelifeyoucansave.org.au, could you tell us how this came about? Okay, so let's go back to the first edition of the book, which came out 10 years ago. Um, after that came out, uh, a friend suggested that I should set up a website uh, so that people can pledge to give uh, in the ways that the book suggests and maybe could recommend some of the 
better organizations to give to. Uh, so with the friend's help, I, I did that. And a couple of students at Princeton helped a little bit with it and sort of set up an organization called The Life You Can Save. But it wasn't very active. You know, it, it's difficult with volunteers, even with the best of intentions, uh, people who uh, students are busy people. They're not going to do very much. So not a lot happened um, until I got a call from a guy called Charlie Bressler, who told me that he'd read the book and uh, he had a successful career in business. He'd been in uh, men's clothing retail industry and it helped to build a major national US chain selling men's clothing. But um, although he'd done well financially, this had never really satisfied him. Um, he you know, had much more radical ideas about contributing to make the world a better place when he was younger. And somehow they kind of got pushed in the background when he got into the business world. But now he was getting into his 60s and he thought, uh, it's not too late. I can still do something different. So he called me up essentially to volunteer to build an organization or to take over the not very active organization that existed then. Uh, he didn't want to be paid for it um, because, as I said, he'd made a reasonable amount of money. In fact, he became a donor uh, to the organization. So I tell him he's on, he's on negative salary. Um, he pays <laughs> to work. Uh, and, uh, but he, he did that very effectively. He came in. He worked full-time on it. Um, he built up um, the organization. He got uh, procedures for recommending organizations, making them more uh, rigorous procedures for the organizations we recommend so you can have a lot of confidence in it. And then he started to do publicity and to get uh, social media and other uh, media to get people to know about the life you can save. And he, he got uh, a couple of other uh, wealthy donors to join him to put some money into it. So they could, there are a couple of people who are employed by the organization now. Uh, and um, it's it was actually his idea to bring out a new edition of the book um, to get back the rights from the commercial publisher who'd put it out before so that we could put it online free uh, as we have now done. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when he got that going in the United States uh, and we looked at where queries were coming in online, where people were donating from, we noticed that Australia was, uh, after the United States, I think the, the next biggest source for people supporting it. And that's presumably because I am Australian and reasonably well-known in Australia. So uh, we decided to try to find somebody in Australia who would help to set up the life you can save, uh, .au. Uh, And uh, we came across uh, Richard Wickstrom, who'd uh, worked in the development field, and he's essentially running the life you can save Australia now. And that's why we have this uh, Australian website, which is uh, slightly distinct from the from the uh, US one, but is associated with it. Yeah, the website itself, it's really smooth. It's easy. Uh, it's straightforward. Some websites are really annoying, but this one's clear. It's easy to understand. So, if you do want to find a good charity or a good organization, I guess, Peter, this is all around the effective altruism movement and being a giver with the most bang for your buck. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the effective altruism movement is also a reasonably new movement, um, only a little over 10 years old. And and it is about exactly um, not only being altruistic, not only giving, not only having your aim to make the world a better place, but doing that as effectively as you can. So whether you're putting in money or time, whatever it might be, get the most out of it. 
to do the most good. Um, and that does require some thought and some information because a lot of people when they come to giving uh, they're moved emotionally as of course you know we should be anybody should be moved by the side of a child in need but uh, the fact that uh, you know somebody hands you a, a brochure with a photo of a child in need doesn't prove that that's the best organization to give to and so you need to look at the independent research to see whether the organization that you're thinking of giving to really is the one you should give to. Yeah, and I guess it's probably just about having your own healthy level of scepticism in every area of your life, including your financial life, and that does not exclude your giving. Now, on the website, you can give directly to the website, if that's correct, Peter, and then uh, thelifeyoucansave.org.au acts as the clearinghouse that dishes out the money to a variety of charities, or do you just go and narrow it down and choose your own adventure based on the charities that you have screened and you actually like the cause? Yeah, well, you can do either. You know, you can, if you want, give to uh, the Life You Can Save All Charities uh, Fund, and that will be distributed across the Life You Can Save's recommended charities. Not just equally distributed, but we have a look at it and think about which are the ones that um, at the moment have greatest need for fund and can do the most good with it with their programs. Um, but you can also uh, select your own charities. There are details on each of the uh, 20 or so recommended charities. And of course, if as an Australian you're interested in tax deductibility, which does make your donation go further, look at uh, information under the heading tax deductibility, which will show you how to give to those organisations that are listed. Um, there are a lot of uh, Australian organisations, including the Fred Hollows Foundation, for example, which helps preserve people's sight or restores their sight in some cases. And uh, Oxfam is another organisation that's uh, well known, uh, Oxfam Australia, that is, is on that list. So there are, um, there are a number of organisations that you can give to with tax deductibility, um, and that will make your dollars go even further. Now, Peter, in one of your TED Talks, and everybody press pause right now after I finish saying this, jump onto YouTube or thelifeyoucansave.org.au, look for Peter Singer, uh, Effective Altruism. You've got to watch it. Don't talk to me unless you watch it, and then come back and talk to us. But you talked about the guide dogs, okay? And as an example that it's an amazing thing that people who are sight impaired or vision impaired can get a guide dog, right? Amazing. It costs about $50,000 to train a guide dog, okay? However, if we did allocate that 50000 to another cause, perhaps we could stop or prevent up to 2,000 people from being blind in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, that's why it's so important to do the research and to know that you're giving effectively because, of course, everybody thinks giving a guide dog to somebody who's vision impaired is, is a good thing to do. But unfortunately, it does take a lot of training, training of the dog, training of the vision impaired person, and, and that's costly. Whereas um, helping people in low-income countries can be very inexpensive. Um, the, uh, so if the $50,000 is, is going to help 2,000 people, then we're talking about $25 per person. Um, you know, even if you, let's say, well, maybe that's bit of a you know low estimate and maybe it's $50 per person um, 
that's still a thousand people and obviously restoring sight to a thousand people is way way better than helping one vision impaired person person get a, a guide dog so uh that's just another example because of the the differential between high income countries like ours and and low income countries where people uh, are blind because of things that nobody in Australia really would be blind because of because say if they developed cataracts they would get them removed on uh, on our Australian health service free um, but that doesn't happen in uh, all of the world unfortunately so I want to move on now to some juicy stuff about personal finance okay we all may have a guide dog dilemma in our own life okay I want to set the scene with this discussion and I'll value your Opinion, Peter, in the finance world or the investing world, there's a portfolio management style called the core satellite approach. And as a basic example, that means I might put 80% or uh, $80 in 100 into a big portfolio that does the job really well. It's bread and butter. It's really a great core, not too crazy fund. Okay. Then that other 20% or the other $20, I might put in a satellite fund. Now, this satellite fund, it could be a little bit more sexy. It could be more of a passion project. It could be a little bit more risky, but we don't throw all our money blindly into that uh, satellite fund because it might not be the best use of our investment money. So it's a core satellite approach. Back to relation to our own personal finances and giving, Peter, I've resolved in my own life, actually, after reading the book, I'm thinking of, and and wait till after I've talked with you, but I'm thinking about adapting a core satellite approach in my own giving. Now, what I'm planning to do is the core of my giving money, uh, which might be the 80% or the $80 in the $100 that I give, would be to allocate towards relieving and abolishing extreme global poverty. And then the other 20% or my satellite giving, it might be a cause that would be my guide dog. So for example, my family's been affected by um, a really bad disease and we really believe in this foundation and we want to give to this. So I might give 20% to the local charity because it's my passion project, albeit that they weirdly might have 90% of their dollars going towards costs and 10% effectiveness. But how do we navigate this on a practical personal finance level? Yeah, I don't think you should give to any charity that has 90% of its uh, <laughs> funds going to costs. Um, but n- n- none of the charities that people you know really know about are like that, right? All the well-known charities, whether it's Save the Children or World Vision or Oxfam or whatever, their expenses are far, far um, below that sort of level. 90% is basically just a fraud. Um, but uh, I wouldn't differentiate between, you know, whether it's 15%, 20%, 25%. I mean, that might just be the nature of the work, that you need to have good staff to make sure the programs work. And cutting back your staff to get your admin costs down from 25% to 15% um, sounds good. But if that means that the remaining 85%, you know, which you throw out to programs that you haven't properly vetted, isn't doing much good at all, um, then it would have been better to only distribute 75% of your funds and have them all good programs. So, uh, you know, you, people do judge just by, you know, the ratio of expenses to administration. And I think that's that's right the right thing to do in extreme cases, but the wrong thing to do when we're fiddling with the margins. But to get back to your question, um, 
I think that people, it's reasonable for people to have particular personal concerns. Um, they may want to do something in their local community. They may see homeless people on the streets around them and they may want to do something to help them. Um, they may have a, uh, I don't know, a grandfather who's vision impaired and uh, uh, has got a, a guide dog and they may think, you know, I want to give back to this organization that helped my grandfather. You know, that's reasonable. And, and I would say, yeah, do that. But don't think of that as essentially making, you know, your contribution to making the world a better place. It makes the world a somewhat better place, but it's, think of it more as a kind of personal thing, just as you might also, and I think we all do, you know, we all have those luxuries that we spend money on and the things we don't need, uh, your latte or my vacation or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, when you're thinking about your contributions to, to making the world better, uh, then think about how to do that most effectively. Um, and so it might be that in terms of your charitable dollars, yes, 20% 20, 20 goes to those pet causes that you have, the uh, things that you care about in a personal way, but you acknowledge are not getting as great value for your money as giving to some of those uh, recommended charities on the Life You Can Save as website. Um, and that, I think, should be the, the core in this case uh, of of our giving well there you have it i've just got permission from peter singer to use the core satellite approach with my giving so i'll uh, i'll get that sorted very soon yes you 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 have my permission for that so everybody do an audit of your giving where are you giving how much are you giving what are you giving to uh, it's good to always audit our personal finances so why not look at a giving audit now peter you wouldn't be aware uh but i promote a charity on this podcast called a21 they set out to effectively abolish human slavery, okay, and trafficking people. Now, the reason why I originally uh, was so intrigued with this charity is, one, I didn't know slavery and human trafficking was actually such an issue in this day and age. So, for me, it was a bit of an awareness thing. And two, I just thought, like, if something happened to my niece and she was trafficked or uh, was found into slavery, I would just be freaking out. So, having said all that, we still need to go, me included, step back, have a look, how much bang for our buck are we getting? Okay. So, everybody do an audit and maybe you need to turn your giving up a notch. Maybe you need to implement the core satellite approach. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. That that is a good approach because there, there'll be particular things that you care about and you get a lot of satisfaction about. I think the attraction of trying to, you know, support an organization that frees people from slavery is they can show you the person that they freed and you feel, wow, I helped this person to get out of this slavery and now this person is, is living a much better life. When, on the other hand, you give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which is one of the highly effective organizations that distributes bed nets and demonstrably saves children's lives, but you never see the child whose life you've saved, right? No. No child can get up and say, hey, um, I'm alive and I wouldn't be if I hadn't slept under a bed net because, of course, some children do survive without bed nets. Otherwise, these areas would be depopulated. Um, so, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a counterfactual, you know. If I hadn't distributed this money to bed nets, there'd be that many fewer bed nets and statistically, that means there'd be a child or maybe two or five children who would have died depending on how many bed nets I funded. But... Um, but you won't see the identifiable child. And it, in that sense, unfortunately, it perhaps doesn't pull on our heartstrings in quite the same way. 
So I will put your TED Talk up, Peter, in our show notes so people can jump on and and you have a bit of a deep dive into this type of stuff. But for example, a a mosquito net that costs probably under $3.50 Australian, uh, if you you could save that child's life, uh, but you're not getting a nice photo or an email from that child saying, you've saved my life. And you've right. probably just given up your delicious long black on a Thursday afternoon, or, <laughs> or perhaps if you're more familiar with the Americano, Peter. Now, I want to ask an ethicist a question, and it just so happens I am talking with you, Peter Singer, so I figure it's a good place to ask the question. When I teach personal finance, I use the philosophy that we need to get out of personal consumer debt, clean up our mess, because there are people in the world dying, they are going to bed without food, without water, without shelter. And you're over here, you know, living on more than what you earn and your life's a mess because you're, you know, neck deep in debt and repayments. So having said all that, I use the analogy when you're on the aeroplane and the oxygen masks drop, the flight attendants and the cabin crew, they tell you to worry about your own mask first and then help uh, children or perhaps the elderly or somebody in need. So I basically teach to clean up your own freaking mess, then you can worry about giving, and then you can be strong to give. Yeah, that's tough because uh, certainly, you know, paying credit card interest rates is pretty crazy. Um, uh, But I know people are in that situation and they can't help it. So maybe, as you suggest, uh, a really token amount, even if it's $5 a month rather than a week, what, like just to build your habit and your behavior and to get buy-in? Exactly, to feel you're doing this um, and to to know that you build, you're, you're building towards being free of your credit card debt so that then you'll be able to uh, double and triple and quintuple or whatever the, uh, the amount that you're giving. Um, that's, that's a great thing to aim to be doing. It may encourage you to work harder to clear up that debt so that you can build it up. And also, once you are a regular donor, you'll be uh, learning more about the organization you're don- donating to. And uh, that's a good thing as well. You know, it's, Even if you're in debt doesn't mean you can't educate yourself. Totally, totally. I could not agree more. So, I like talking about giving people a practical example. So, in our own life, we need a target, I believe. And I think that target should be around 10% of... Uh, giving of our income. Now, in your book, and we don't have time to go through it now, but you've got some examples about percentages. But maybe as a rule, and I'll start to look at this in more detail as the weeks and months go on uh, and share with the community, maybe if you are on a two-year debt campaign of cleaning up your mess, and maybe maybe it is looking at we're not giving more than 1% of our income just while we're cleaning up our mess or whatever the number is, because we so need to be strong ourselves, then we can give in an impactful way. Yeah, that's right. I, I, the table that I have is a progressive one. It starts off low, as you say, around uh, 1%, um, and it goes up, and it does go higher than 10% for people who are really earning a lot, because I think they can afford to do more than 10%, um, uh, you know, quite a bit more. But um, for most people, it, on the table I give, it, it wouldn't be more than 10%, might be rather less for a lot of people. Yeah, totally. And I would say if you've got this ambitious goal of giving 10% of your income or more, you may have a stroke when I've said that amount. You've got to build the habits and behavior. It's like a marathon. If you want to start training for a marathon, you don't start sprinting tomorrow and then the next day run a marathon. 
Yeah, exactly. And in fact, the uh, the marathon uh, analogy is is quite right here. I think in that not just that you need to build up your training, but also that people who do run marathons or you know run shorter distances like to know what time they take to run a distance, and then they like to improve on that, set a new personal best. So you can do that with giving. You know, you can start off low, and then you can say, well, fine. This year, I'm going to give more than that. I can do better. And then you get comfortable with a new level. And then maybe you'll then say at the end of that year, and now I can set a new personal best for what proportion of my income I give during the year. Yeah. So this marathon thing, we're not sprinting then walking. A marathon, it is just about rhythm. It's a decent pace. Whether you know it or not, you are a type of giver. And there's four types of givers. There's a non-giver. There is a sporadic giver, there's a planned giver, and then there's a planned and generous giver. Now, wherever you are in the giving journey, you can always turn it up a notch. But if you're a non-giver at the moment, we're not asking you to be a planned and generous giver tomorrow. It's just a journey. So, Peter, in the short time I've got left, would you be able to answer some listener questions? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Okay, this first question is from Melanie. Hi, Peter. I'd like to know if you think that there are any really effective and worthy animal welfare or wildlife conservation charities, either in Australia or around the world. And if not, what's the best way for us to support animal rights and wildlife conservation? Thanks so much. Yes, well, I do think there's a, a, an effective animal welfare charity in Australia, but I should disclose that I helped to found it many years ago. Um, the charity I'm talking about is today is called Animals Australia. Um, back in the 1980s, together with Christine Townend, who's a uh, friend of mine currently living in the Blue Mountains, actually, so I've been worried about uh, her well-being with the bushfires around here. Um, uh, we founded something that we called the uh, Australian Federation of Animal Societies. It was a, an attempt to bring together the many different animal societies in Australia in a federal structure. And that gradually, uh, over the years, uh, morphed into Animals Australia. And I've not had uh, anything really to do with it for the last uh, probably 25 years or more. Um, but uh, I do follow it. Um, I do support it. I think that uh, it's, it's still in, in very capable hands uh, and it's grown it's it's the group behind the exposures of the live export trade which i think was a really shocking thing that australia is doing and uh lynn white who's one of the people working for animals australia is a extremely brave woman who's gone to slaughterhouses in the middle east and in indonesia and filmed what's happening um, so I think that they're having a big impact and, and not just on that area, but on a lot of different areas of uh, the treatment of, of animals in Australia, including uh, Australia's uh, native animals. Um, I can't really recommend a specific uh, wild, Australian wildlife or conservation organisation. I'm, I'm not uh, you know, really right up on that in terms of uh, which are the best ones to help. Uh, but I do think Animals Australia covers that. You can certainly look at their website. And uh, so if you're an Australian, uh, that's probably the best one to give to. Yeah, cool. And if I could just add on to that question. So when I talked about the 80-20 core satellite giving approach and that we should be having, well, I'll certainly be having 80% 
going towards uh, extreme world poverty, do animals fit in the 20% fringe thing or the 80% core? Are human lives worth more than animals? Should we be saving humans first, then animals? What should we do? I think it depends on how many animals you can help and how severe their suffering is. I, I don't discount them just because they're not human beings. I think what we ought to be trying to do is to reduce suffering and, and animal suffering certainly counts in that respect. Um, what a lot of, you, you talked about people's pet causes, and of course in this area that's a bit of a, a pun, um, because what a lot of people give to um, is uh, to protect cats and dogs, to um, shelters and things, helping helping stray or abused cats and dogs and that's because they have this emotional connection with cats and dogs uh and you know that's that's fine for that sort of satellite uh area if you like but the vast majority of the animals of the suffering we inflict on non-human animals is the animals in factory farms the uh the laying hens in cages uh very confined very crowded the the pigs are also indoors all their lives in very crowded conditions. The the, chi the chickens we eat that are extremely crowded. Um, and Animals Australia does campaign about this and for better conditions for these animals. And uh, if you can help, therefore, millions of animals, and sort of some of these changes do help millions of animals um, at relatively low cost, then maybe that can belong in the core for some people. I'm, I'm not going to say that uh, reducing the suffering of millions of animals who are living miserable lives in factory farms uh, shouldn't be part of your core. It, it's difficult to compare the sufferings of non-human animals and, and human beings, of course, but I think it's reasonable to say that when the numbers are so great, that's uh, as good a thing to do as um, helping people in extreme poverty. Rightio. Next question is from Dave. Hi, Peter. Hi, Glenn. Um, this question is for Peter after watching his effective altruism um, TED talk. I'm just curious, and um, I do agree with Peter on all his aspects of charity, giving, caring for other people. As Glenn knows, I'm a fairly left-wing kind of thinker, but I watch that and I'm just thinking to myself, if we did save every child 19,000 children a day, extrapolate that out, in terms of population growth, are we, do we have an ethical responsibility in regards to limiting population, given resource consumption, current levels of resource consumption, the effects of climate change? Um, is there an ethical standpoint to say, um, should we maybe not save these children? I know how horrible that sounds, but is the greater good served in terms of being charitable in that regard um uh, interested to hear what peter says thanks right okay that's a that's a it's a long question but it's a good question uh i think we do have to look at the long-term future and the sustainability of our planet um but i'm not sure that it's correct to focus on population growth when we're talking about that because uh we all know that people in uh, affluent countries, we've already touched on this earlier in the program, um, have a much greater carbon footprint and a much greater resource footprint uh, responsible for much more environmental damage than people uh, in poverty in, in low-income countries. So reducing our own carbon footprint and our own consumption and the damage we do to the environment, uh, I think is the first priority. Now, you know, having said that, um, 
yes, population growth may still be an issue. It may be an issue that stands in the way of overcoming poverty in some of those countries where population growth is rapid. But but this is kind of um, something that has, you know, where poverty is one side and population growth is the other. And if we can reduce poverty, all the evidence shows that population growth slows. So in the affluent world, in uh, Australia, United States, um, uh, Europe, uh, population, natural reproduction is is below replacement level um, generally, and it's only immigration that keeps countries uh, at or above replacement level. Um, and and there is evidence from uh, Southeast Asia, uh, our own neighbours, Indonesia, Thailand, and so on, that as these countries have become more affluent, their rate of population growth has fallen. So we can hope that that will happen also if we can help people to escape poverty in the countries that are still very poor, particularly those in sub-Saharan Africa where population growth is, is fastest, but where poverty is also deepest. And let me, let me just add that, you know, if you are concerned about population, then one thing you can do is to support charities that educate children, particularly, of course, educating girls, um, because uh, there's good evidence that the more years of education a girl gets, the fewer children she's likely to have over her lifetime. Yeah, wonderful. And one last question that could probably be a yes or no, and it's from Tim. Hi, Peter. Are human ethics more cultural than natural? I think human ethics are both, so I can't really give it a yes or no. I think we have evolved to have certain instinctive reactions to kinds, various kinds of conduct. Um, and one of the problems with why we don't do more for people in poverty elsewhere in the world is that our reactions were evolved in a face-to-face society. So we evolve, we react to seeing someone in front of us in great need. We don't react to learning about somebody in great need on the other side of the world. Um, But there, I think culture can play a role. And that's, in a sense, what I'm trying to achieve with uh, The Life You Can Save, the book and the organization. Uh, I'm trying to develop a culture of giving in which we give with our head as well as with our heart um, and know that we're trying to do the most good that we can do. Um, And I think there's, there's evidence that you can get cultural change on a whole lot of ethical issues, just, just, Look at the change in my own lifetime, for example, on issues like uh, same-sex relationships, you know, which 50 years ago were illegal, um, you know, and to talk about same-sex marriage, people would have laughed at you. Um, and we've fortunately gone through a really major cultural shift in that. So um, I'm hoping we can do it on other issues as well, including uh, the way we respond to extreme poverty elsewhere in the world. Love it. Well, that's all we've got time for, Peter. And I just want to say on behalf of all the My Millennial Money listeners, thank you so much for giving us your evening. I know you're a very busy person and I probably shouldn't say busy because I hate that word, but you're a very productive individual and thanks for making the time. But what I'm going to do, I've made the call now from this episode onwards, we're going to shout out the lifeyoucansave.org.au at the end of every episode because we need to get the message out there. And I wrote down, as you said it, Peter, we've got to get this culture of giving happening and we need to give with our head and our heart. And what you've explained to us tonight has been so amazing. So we're going to help you spread the message. Thank you so much. And if you haven't already, 
jump on the website, check it out, grab tickets to Peter's talking tour of Australia and New Zealand later in the year. And once again, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, that's really that's really tremendous. Thank you so much for uh, for doing that. Um, it's terrific to have that support from you, uh, and I'm really pleased to have uh, had the time to to talk to you and to talk to all of your listeners. Peter, good night. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Ben. Bye. Please don't make me say it. No, you make me do it every single time. Someone, please help me. No, I'm just kidding. Please help me. It's the Community Member of the Week. All right, Shawnee, you're up. And thank you to Asha. Shawnee, you are the Community Member of the Week. Thanks for hanging out in our Facebook group. Shawnee's 21. He lives in Toowoomba in Queensland. Shout out to everybody living in Toowoomba and Queensland. He is an oil and gas worker and he's FIFO. So, if you don't know what FIFO means and you've heard people say FIFO, it's fly in, fly out. So, he might... He may, for example, work off the coast of Western Australia. He might fly from Queensland over there for two weeks, six weeks, 10 days, whatever that is, fly back home and then have two weeks, 10 days, six weeks, whatever it is, off work. He might even zip up to Bali in the meantime. Now, his financial goal is to get a house deposit together by mid-2020, so the middle of this year, and he needs 70 grand to do that. And how is he doing this? Well, he's just straight up putting $500 a week into a high interest savings account. So, Shawnee's pretty much sounds like he's got a pretty good income happening there to save, you know, $500 a week into a savings account. And to be 21 with 70 grand into a house, like you keep up these good habits, Shawnee, and you'll have a banging financial life. The silliest money mistake he's made is that he bought a $3,000 TV. That's crazy. Three grand on a freaking TV. Anyway, we've all made dumb mistakes, me included. So that's great. Glad you've learned from your mistakes and not got another TV worth that much. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I just so want to encourage everyone. You've got to get Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save. It rocked my world and it will rock yours too. A little bit of housekeeping. If you have not heard our newest podcast, it's a separate podcast. It's called My Millennial Career. You can listen to that wherever you're listening to this podcast. And Shell and M, they have some really good discussions about, you know, getting a pay rise, how to make a good resume, cover letter, the interview, dealing with a toxic workplace, all the stuff. We've got so much content coming for that. It's going to be great. But just, we've just got to keep telling people about it because they jump in the Facebook group and they go, oh, where's the new podcast? Didn't know you were doing that. So, we are doing that. We've also got My Millennial Money Property, which is basically just John and I chatting only about property. So, there's a heap of different content and topics for you to listen to there. I do a podcast called My Millennial Money Express, which is just a little under 10-minute podcast. And finally, if you are listening to this and you are under 24, there's a podcast called Gen Z Money, which we just target Gen Z. So, the next generation coming up, we want to get people fit with their money, educated about their money to make the right money decisions so we can be like Shawnee and have 70 grand saved. So, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being part of the community, Shawnee. If you want to be a community member of the week, just send a Facebook inbox message to Carly, our community manager. Tell her you want to be a community member of the week. She'll ask you some questions. She'll ask for a photo. And this is fun getting to know you all. So, thank you so much. I'll see you guys soon. Bye.
If you're after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. But if you do want a financial advisor or mortgage broker to talk with about your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'll put you in touch with one of our trusted professionals. If you're looking for a super fund that puts its members' interests above all else, choose a super performer, Sun Super. With low fees, strong investment returns, and great member services, Sun Super is Super Ratings 2020 Fund of the Year and has also been awarded by Money Magazine, CanStar, and Finder. Find out more about Sun Super at sunsuper.com.au forward slash choose. You can join Sun Super online in under five minutes. Many people do not realize that slavery still exists in the world today. That's why My Millennial Money supports A21. We want to highlight A21 as they work to abolish slavery and human trafficking all across the world. If you want to support A21, visit a21.org.au for more information. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a high chance you have disposable income. Glenn has a mandate to get everyone giving, saving, and spending in that order. Now, we want to encourage you to be generous with your money, but choosing an effective charity can be difficult. An amazing resource you can use is thelifeyoucansave.org.au. You can donate to them, and they'll distribute your donation to a variety of life-saving and life-changing charities around the world, with a focus on eliminating extreme poverty. For more information, visit thelifeyoucansave.org.au. Thanks to Jess Knaus, executive producer, Laura from La La Social Club, and me, Asha. Uh, Anyway, make sure you stay connected via Instagram or our free Facebook group. For further information about what's going on, check out the links in the show notes.